This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. I'm Lisa Muscatine. I'm one of the co-owners of the store, along with my husband, Brad Graham, who's right back there. And along with our staff, we welcome all of you to today's teach-in. It's about guns in America. We are so lucky to have these three panelists with us. Each of them brings a unique perspective to this subject, and they will each uh, make an opening statement in a second and answer some questions, and then we'll get into, as I said, the larger discussion. Uh, On the far end, many of you uh, may know Craig Whitney personally, but many of you may just know him by his byline in the New York Times, where he was a reporter, foreign correspondent, and editor for many years before retiring in 2009. His journalistic career took him all over the world, to war zones, to societies in transition. Among his most distinguished reporting was his work as the Times Moscow bureau chief in the late 1970s, when he covered Soviet dissidents, among other things, and was put on trial for slander in a Soviet court. He was convicted in absentia and fined, but allowed to stay in the Soviet Union until the end of his tour. I just think that's something for all of us to think about today. Craig is also the author of five books. I'll single out one in particular because it's uh, relevant to today's discussion. It was published uh, in, in 2012. It's called Living with Guns, A Liberal's Case for the Second Amendment, and it is ridiculously still as relevant now as it was when he published it some years ago. Also with us this afternoon is Avery Gardner. She's the president of the Brady Center for the Prevention of Gun Violence. If uh, you follow the news about mass shootings, homicide rates, 3D printer guns, bump stocks, or pretty much anything on the subject of guns or gun control, you have probably read Avery's comments or gleaned her insights in newspaper and television stories. That's because she's a nationally recognized expert in and speaker about gun violence prevention. She's one of the most respected faces of gun control advocacy in America. Uh, Before focusing on gun violence, she worked as a corporate and government lawyer, including at the Department of Justice, and has also worked as a strategic consultant. And last, to my side here, but certainly not least, we are honored to have Zion Kelly on our panel today. Zion is definitely the youngest of our panel. He's only 17 years old, but in some ways, he's the most experienced. He's become a powerful voice for a generation of American teenagers fed up with gun violence in their communities and with politicians who fail to do anything about it. I hope that many of you heard his inspiring speech to several hundred thousand people at the March for Our Lives rally in Washington a few months ago. He has a message that all of America needs to listen to, and I think you will Um, find it quite inspiring again today. Um, I just want to point out that Zion did not become an advocate and activist by choice. He was thrust into this role. His twin brother Zaire, an athlete and student leader at Thurgood Marshall Academy in Southeast DC, was killed by a man with a gun as he walked home from a college prep course at school. Zion can fill in the details of that horrible tragedy and how he has committed himself to honoring his brother's legacy by raising the alarm about violence that has reached epidemic proportions, especially in often overlooked neighborhoods of cities across our country. Zion is a 2018 graduate of Thurgood Marshall Academy and plans to attend Florida A&M University this fall, just a couple days ago, I think. Uh, This week, anyway, he was named the 2018 recipient of the D.C. Attorney General's Right Direction Award for his work as an advocate. His brother, Zaire, received the award last year, shortly before he was killed. And lastly, I just want to say that being on this panel is a huge uh, contribution of time and your willingness to share your insights and perspectives, often very personal ones, 
So we really do appreciate uh, that you're so willing to be here and we're honored to have all three of you. I was gonna start with uh, you, Zion. Um, I just said you were the most experienced panelist here and that's because you have experienced gun violence in a deeply personal way. And you've had to navigate the reality of gun violence in your neighborhood on a regular basis. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us sort of your journey. You went from just being a kind of I don't mean ordinary, because he's obviously extraordinary, but an extraordinary, ordinary high school kid to now a leader almost of a national movement. I really got involved in the movement um, because last September my brother was shot and killed on his way home. So, and my brother was really uh, active in our community. He was he was a youth um, council member for, for my ward, and I wanted to continue his legacy, and I wanted to to do something to make him to make him proud. So when I got the opportunity to speak at the March for Our Lives rally in, in March this year, after the Parkland shooting, um, I got the opportunity to speak. So I took the opportunity to share my story to to just really broaden the conversation that that gun violence is huge around the entire country. That, um, that often my communities um, aren't really uh, represented in the media when it comes to gun violence. Uh, the conversation was really about mass shootings, but but in reality, um, people who look like me really experience uh, gun violence on, on on a broader scale. So I really wanted to just represent my community and to continue my brother's uh, work that, that he couldn't continue. That's really why I got involved. And since then, I have um, pr uh, proposed new legislation and in the city, and I have uh, advocated for that. Um, I have spoken at a number of different different events, really just to just to gain um, awareness, so that so that um, myself and my peers can really be represented in the conversation that. Uh, that's around gun violence uh, that's happening. Thank you so much, and I want to get back to a couple of things you said. Um, we'll move on for, for for each of our other panelists to say a few things, but there's a lot to follow up up on with what you uh, what you just mentioned. Avery, you see this issue from the perspective of, of a lawyer. You're a lawyer. Um, you've, you're also the leader of a grassroots organization that's trying to both to change laws and change public policy and change attitudes. And I'm just wondering if you could give us a brief summary of where things stand on in those realms in the in the debate about gun control right now. To do that in two minutes would be impossible, but let me give it a try. Okay. So. Uh, very briefly, the scope of what we're talking about here, 96 people die every day from a gunshot in this country. That adds up to about 35,000 over the course of a year. And since the federal assault weapon ban expired in 2004, we've actually seen very, very little action at the federal policy level from our elected officials. In fact, the only action that we have seen has been to weaken gun laws at the federal level. Fortunately, the story is a very different one when we look at the states. Uh, in the past decade, and in particularly the last four months, we have seen an explosion of common sense gun laws being enacted by different states around the country. And this is an, an important one for my organization in particular. It's about background checks. Jim and Sarah Brady 
fought tooth and nail to get the federal law passed that required a background check before a licensed gun seller transferred a gun to a purchaser. But that law has a massive gap in it. And the gap is that only licensed gun dealers are required to do those checks. And as a result of changes in the way that guns are sold from 1994 until today, uh, we now estimate that about one in five guns is sold without any background check at all. And this is where the states have truly stepped up. We now have 20 states that have passed state laws to close that gap and expand background checks to a broader number of gun sales than is required under federal law. But to illustrate the frustration we have at the federal level, there is a bill pending in Congress right now that would close that gap. There has been a bill pending in every Congress for the last decade to close that gap, mind you. But the one currently has 208 co-sponsors, and yet the Speaker of the House will not schedule it for a debate or a vote. So we are pushing very hard to raise the awareness of the gun violence issue in the midterm elections. We are fewer than 90 days away from the midterms. And that's one of the key issues we're pushing at a grassroots level. The other side of this discussion has been very effective at getting their supporters to vote on one issue and one issue alone and to do it faithfully on every single candidate. And that's where I'm excited about the change we're seeing, particularly since the Parkland massacre. And it's that people are now naming gun issues as the top one or two issue that they're voting on when they're considering it from the other side, not from the NRA's perspective. Uh, we saw that in the Virginia gubernatorial election last November, guns were listed as the second most important issue to voters in the exit polls. So that's the kind of change that we saw starting last November that I think the work that the young people, Zion and many of his peers have done, uh, have effectuated already. And that is that the midterm elections are going to address the gun issue in a way that has not been something that has happened for decades. Thank you so much. That's so interesting. And um, now turning to you, Craig, uh, as the journalist in the group, the uh, trained impartial observer. You know, it's interesting. You try in your book to to help Americans find the common ground on this issue that has been so incredibly elusive, um, to find a solution that respects the right of gun owners on the one hand, but also addresses unchecked violence that keeps occurring, be it mass shooting after mass shooting or innocent lives lost like uh, that of Zaire Kelly. I'm just wondering, um, in writing this book, because you went back and really dove into American history and the whole culture around guns from the very beginning. Did you, what did you learn that you didn't know from the outside and did your mind change on anything? Well, I began uh, the research because I realized in all those years I was abroad and people would say, why are you Americans so fixated and flooded with guns that I didn't really know. So I, I just thought it would be interesting after I retired to see if I could find out by taking a look at, at history. And the, the overwhelming thought that I came away from all that with is that, yes, it's a right. It's not a right established by the Constitution. The Constitution recognizes a right that preexisted it. Uh, but with rights came responsibilities even then. And the responsibility was a civic duty to serve if you were a white male you could have you should have a gun and be subject to call up in uh, the militia of your state or locality and we still have a, a i believe a civic duty today and that's to 
say that, yes, we have the freedom to have 300 million guns in our country, but we have the responsibility with all those guns to the safety of the people who have the guns and, and of others. And we've failed in that. Uh, as we've heard, uh, we have the highest rate of gun deaths of any major industrial country. And even though 60% of them are suicides, uh, and that's just below, by the way, the total uh, of, of deaths from automobile accidents, opioids are growing faster. And they now outnumber gun deaths. There's nothing in the Second Amendment that forbids gun control. And even Justice Scalia's opinion in the District of Columbia uh, versus Heller decision back in 2008 said, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. But I wouldn't look to the Supreme Court uh, if Judge Kavanaugh is confirmed to <laughs> limit gun rights any further. I believe the biggest obstacle to more effective gun control at every level is not the Second Amendment, but the National Rifle Association, the NRA, which I joined in order to know what they were saying when I wrote my book. Uh, it constantly spreads the lie that the real objective of people who say they want gun control is to take away everybody's guns who have them. And that should not be the aim of people who want to control gun violence, I believe. The object should be not to take away the guns from millions of law-abiding people who own them, but to keep guns out of the hands of people who everybody agrees should not have them. People with criminal records, uh, users of illegal drugs, uh, people who make criminal threats in, among them. And the biggest new thing that I've seen in the, la in the last year, I thought when I wrote my book, uh, and it came out in 2012, that was just before the Sandy Hook massacre in Connecticut. I thought that would change everything. And of course, it didn't, especially here in Washington. Although 58 senators did vote for uh, expanding uh, the background checks to include uh, everybody, including at uh, uh, fairs and so on. But the biggest new thing is the, the young people have suddenly uh, uh, gotten momentum and, and, and see that this is a cause that affects them. One of my two granddaughters, who just uh, lived for five years with their parents in China, coming to the United States, they've just uh, moved to Washington, said she was afraid to come. And her mother asked her why. And she said, I might get shot in school. Well, you know, what have we come to if a little girl, uh, nine years old, is afraid of getting shot at school? So there are lots of things we can do, and the biggest one is vote. Vote for people who will do what you want them to do to make it safer for all of us with all these guns we have. Um, you know, speaking of young people, um, we have one right here who um, has been at the forefront of this, Zion, and you just said you've been speaking out, you've been trying to get legislation passed, uh, you've been working, I assume, still with the kids from Parkland and from Chicago and elsewhere, many of whom spoke um, at the March for Our Lives. What has been, has felt like, w when does it feel like you get traction as this part of this coalition of young people? What is still frustrating? What is it that you can tell us that we need to know from your experience? that we probably don't know. I think um, 
the biggest thing for um young people we have the most traction is is really um connecting with people uh, young people all across the nation to um really share their stories out and share how they've been affected to um to really emphasize that uh gun violence affects us all it, it affects um everyone in this uh in this country so we've been able to connect with people from all across the nation and because of that we've we've had a like a stronger um voice and been able to continue the continue the um the conversation around gun violence and the most frustrating thing for me is really being able to actually um impact um change so so young people by getting the getting the chance to have a, a seat at the table to really impact change i think that's really the most frustrating thing for for all of us because of course it's um uncomfortable for older people older people who have power um to really um step out of their comfort zone and and, and share power with a young person because they're just not used to it but a lot of times that's how solutions are are made do you feel like um in pressing for legislation people adults are listening politicians are listening to you or do you feel like you're just constantly sort of having to bark up their tree i think that they're that they hear us and they're um acknowledging us but they're not really um certain certain politicians are listening because they have their own um you know political agenda but you find sort of strength in numbers like you find that your connection with these kids across the country is giving you all sort of keeping you going yes yeah. that's good thank goodness thank goodness for all of you but um that's good to hear um avery um craig mentioned the heller case which of course was an interesting case to say the least in the supreme court in 2008 followed up by a case from chicago in 2010 that essentially ruled that individuals have a right to bear arms. And then there was a sort of confusing part about whether the government has authority to regulate which arms they do have a right to bear. And I guess we've sort of been in a, a uh, sort of legal limbo as a result of that. But can you just talk a little bit about the effect of those cases? And, um, you know, you, we don't think much is going to change in certain direction with the new Supreme Court justice who will likely be uh, approved, but what what is the effect of that case today, ten years later? Well, let's hold off on confirming Brett Kavanaugh yet. Please. Okay, yeah, no, no, I didn't mean. There's to. some documents some of us would like to read first. Right. Well, uh, yeah. So let me. I could talk about the Supreme Court and the Heller case for a long time, and I promise I won't do that. But I I would be remiss if I didn't say it first that for all of the attention we put on new legislation and the Supreme Court, that the number of things we could do to stop gun violence that have absolutely nothing to do with the court or our elected leaders is so promising and extraordinary that I would love for us to find a way to talk about that when we get to the audience questions. But let me say a few words about Heller. Heller is not nearly as bad as people think it is. Heller's actually a great decision. The language that Craig was talking about in Heller as a limited right is incredibly powerful. So here's what Heller was about and what it said. It's a Supreme Court opinion from almost exactly 10 years ago. It was a five to four decision, and it was Justice Scalia who authored it. And Justice Kennedy was the fifth vote, incidentally, for all who are wondering about that. What it said was that law-abiding, responsible Americans may have a gun in the home. That's it. It does not say anything about carrying a gun outside the home. 
and it does not say anything positive about a Second Amendment right to certain kinds of weapons that some people call assault weapons. I prefer AR-15 style weapons as a less controversial term. In fact, Justice Scalia says, hey, what the Second Amendment protects is guns that were in common use at the time, where at the time is 1791, folks. So the Heller decision is really a very, very limited one. It says that law-abiding Responsible Americans can have a gun in the home for self-defense. And that was then extended in the McDonald case to say that that applies to the states. The um, fascinating part, I think, to the Supreme Court watchers among us is that the court has not taken up any Second Amendment cases since then. So it's been a decade without any real jurisprudence from the Supreme Court on the Second Amendment. Why is that? Because there have been more than a thousand cases that have worked their way up through the federal district courts and courts of appeal in that 10-year period of time. And the reason is that the Supreme Court gets to choose which cases it takes. And they uh, litigants file something called a petition for a writ of certiori. And you have to get four justices to vote in favor of the court taking that case. Otherwise, the court doesn't take it up. And they have failed to get four votes all along the way. And so there have been cases about assault weapons. There have been cases about felons having access to guns. There have been dozens of cases that the Supreme Court has said, we're not going to get four votes for that writ, so we're not going to do it. And that's, I think, the real difference we'll see if Judge Kavanaugh is confirmed to the Supreme Court. He will be solidly a fourth vote for the court to take up these cases. So if he is on the court, expect to see a lot more on Second Amendment jurisprudence from the court. It, it is true, I believe, and maybe you can comment on this or Craig can, that the NRA did not make their sort of gun rights uh, didn't make the Second Amendment sort of the basis of their gun rights defenses until fairly recently. Is that right? That is right. The, the NRA was mostly focused on sportsmanship and riflery for a long, long time and then switched direction in about the 1970s and started focusing on guns as a right. In fact, they call it a human right, not just a right that stems from the Constitution or prior to the Constitution in American culture. Uh, but they will fight any case there is to fight. They filed a brief in the Supreme Court back in the 90s calling for the entire Brady Bill to be struck down as unconstitutional. So there is not a common sense gun law that they will not challenge in court. In fact, they have said that. Voters in California passed a package of six gun laws a couple of years ago, and the NRA put out a press release saying, we will challenge every single one of them in court. Stay tuned. So expect them to keep doing that. Right. Unless, unless they run out of money, which they... They say uh, that lawsuits to uh, uh, prevent them from buying insurance, at least as cheaply as they have been doing, uh, continue. Craig, um, you, yeah, well, you know, we have to believe some fake news, right? Um, uh, you mentioned there's 100 million handguns, 100 million guns in this country, I think about 60 million gun owners. Um, Sorry, 300 million guns, 100 million handguns, 60 million gun owners. Um, and in your, your book, you say, look, we're not getting rid of guns. This is just a way of life in America. We got to learn to live with guns, like it or not. You also are somewhat critical of, of certain gun control uh, advocates or groups who um, perhaps out of a sense of purity um, have made it their mission to ban all guns, that that's the solution to them. And you also are critical of gun rights advocates who 
you alluded to this earlier, do not take seriously the initial uh, goal of the founders, which was that gun owners should also have a civic responsibility that they take seriously. But at, at this point, it's all that all sounds very reasonable. But what is if you had the common sense solution? What is it? Could you describe what it is? Well, I, and it has I, to be politically plausible. I <laughs> I agree that uh, don't start at the top. Start at the state and local level. That's been much more effective recently, and it will continue to be. There, you'll find, uh, or more easily find, people who agree that uh, something should be done to make it safer for us all. And, uh, and I think you can start with, uh, uh, it would be a small step, and it almost uh, got through in February of 2013 uh, when the Senate uh, debated uh, gun control after the Newtown massacre to expand the background checks to include all gun sales by dealers anywhere mm -hmm. and private sales as well. That's, you know, it seems ridiculous to, for the NRA to argue that that's an infringement of the right to have a gun. It's not. As, as Scalia said, uh, the right is not unlimited. And they had registration requirements and safety requirements uh, long before uh, the NRA ever existed and when, even before the Second Amendment was adopted. So start with things like that and then work your way along would be my advice. Um, Zion, uh, the Trump administration and Trump himself has said that it would be a great idea to put armed teachers in school, train them to use guns. Your school may have felt safer than your neighborhood for a lot of your classmates. Some of your, you've lost how many more classmates just in the last year to gun violence or, uh, or schoolmates? Yeah, my school lost two uh, students. My school alone. Yeah. So, so what is our, what do you, how do you, what do you think about arming teachers? Yeah, I don't think arming teachers would um, would be a solution to to end gun violence. What do you think I the think. solution is for 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 you know for, to make kids feel safe uh, in your neighborhood at your school? You know, walking home from school after going to a college prep course. I think, and in, in my instance, um, I would feel safer if um, like my community will change instead of um, um, us relying on um, laws and and uh, new legislation, we really need to, to really just change our community and um, like promote peace and instead of um, promoting violence. And so that's, and that would make me feel safer, but that wouldn't um, work for everyone. So, and I think if, um, if teachers are armed in our, in our schools, then it would um, disproportionately affect um, students of color, um, really. Because we already have um, metal detectors, and um, not at my school, but at many schools across the city, we already have um, student resource officers. So adding more guns will only um, will just affect us more, I guess. So. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Avery, there's a paradox uh, that is written in this book by Philip Cook and Kristen Goss called The Gun Debate. I suspect you will not agree that this is a fair statement. But this is what they say. They say, Americans favor stronger gun laws, but historically have not mobilized very noticeably to achieve that goal. That's absolutely true. I agree okay. with that 100%. Oh, okay. Look, 97% of Americans say they support an expanded background check system. Yeah. It is the most popular political issue I know. In fact, 97% of Americans can't agree that puppies are cute. But then so why? when we have a policy proposal... 
that 97% of Americans think is sensible, Craig thinks it's sensible, why can't we enact it? It's because there's no consequence for our political leaders when they fail to follow through. So it's not, I think what these authors are alluding to, and I probably should have provided this context, is that that gun control advocacy groups have been too fragmented, have not been able to agree on a particular set of policies or issues, and therefore don't have the sort of simplistic focus of the NRA and thus have not provided enough of a challenge to the NRA. I think the issue is that we've not been effective at getting people to vote on this issue and to hold people accountable on it. Our members of Congress need to vote on these issues. And if we don't, we'll get a new Congress. That hasn't been something that people have been willing to do. Mm-hmm. I think now they are. And I, I, it has been an extraordinary year in this movement. I just want to do a, a very quick tour of what the last year had in it. Because October 1st, we had the deadliest mass shooting in all of American history with the Vegas concert shooting. And then six weeks later, we had another of the 10 deadliest mass shootings in the entirety of American history, and that was at a Texas church in Sutherland Springs. And then we thought maybe we could take a deep breath at Brady, but we were wrong because then came the Parkland massacre on Valentine's Day. And so I think that part of what we're seeing with this extraordinary energy is largely the enthusiasm and bravery of the teens who have stepped up, but it's also that people were pretty darn frustrated with this already because in a five-month period of time, we had three of the 10 deadliest mass shootings in all of American history. Uh, People were upset when the Vegas shooting happened and Congress did nothing. They didn't even ban bump stocks, guys. Then they were upset when the Sutherland Springs shooting happened, and we learned that the man who perpetrated that murder was not allowed to have a gun, but he'd been allowed to buy one at a gun dealer because the system didn't have the right data in it. And people were pretty mad that Congress couldn't do much about that. That's, I think, the context for which we have to understand what's happening now. That we saw the frustration after Vegas, we saw the frustration after Sutherland Springs, and it exploded after Parkland. So. At, at Brady, we've had the really fun experience of candidates cold calling and begging for endorsements, right? And it's been a fun election cycle for that reason. That sends, I think, a signal that people realize this is something that's going to matter in the polls this year in a way it didn't when the authors were writing the quote that you read to us. Um, questions from the audience? Anybody want to step up? In 2016, the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, reported gun deaths at over uh, 38,000 and wounded at nearly 118,000. So I think the important figure that I use is 155,000 Americans wounded and killed by guns every year. Why do we only talk about deaths? And then there, there's the issue of the hundreds of thousands of people suffering PTSD, like the 3,000 students at Parkland who didn't get shot, but who experienced that incident. That's my first question. And then second, quickly, is it not important to talk about gun safety and sensible gun laws? The word gun control, at least in our experience, is, you know, it's a, has a lot of backlash from the NRA. Thank you. Craig, do you want to tackle that? And then I have a, want Zion to talk well, about it, on, too. Well, on the second question, gun safety, uh, there are uh, measures that could be taken to improve gun safety, and, and they exist in some uh, places, requiring people who have guns, for instance, to store them safely and so that they are not accessible by children living in the house. That seems like a common sense measure to me, but even that is resisted by 
the NRA. So just to lump everything uh, concerned with gun control under the rubric of gun safety might not be uh, as useful a distinction as you think. Um, and Zion, we all are talking about these mass shootings. The mass shootings get all the attention. They're very dramatic. They, we just heard about PTSD from mass shootings. I would bet some people in your neighborhood have PTSD walking home from school if they feel unsafe. Yes, so of course the mass shootings are very unfortunate and uh, should not happen, but it it is true that many people in my school and my community um, are, are are deeply affected by um by the shootings. Um, I personally didn't want to walk home from school and um, for a very long time. I either got um, a ride to school or like called the Uber or Lyft because I was just so afraid that I would be shot. And so that's something that that is that is really uh, real. I think another thing that uh, a lot of people a lot of people also forget. Um, are, are the presence of illegal guns. Um, here in Washington, D.C., we um, don't have any gun stores and we have some of the strictest gun laws, but um, guns are in the streets and guns affect many lives. So guns are coming in from Virginia and um, other bordering states and um, Pennsylvania and those type of states. And they're able to come um, in the district and cause some tremendous damage. So I think that we um, need to start uh, really investigating gun trafficking uh, that happens. And uh, once we do that, then we will see uh, more more change. How did you overcome the fear of walking to and from school? What 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 was it just time passing or was it uh, how did mean, you do that? I never overcame the fear of uh, walking um, to the metro to school. Um, uh, I'm still afraid and I still, um, you know, look look um, behind my shoulder to check if anyone is coming with a gun. But it's just something that I have to do. I have to go to school. I can't avoid going to school. So. And you feel like your friends share that fear as well? Have yeah. you talked about it? Uh-huh. A lot of my friends um, share that um, same fear. Just a month ago, about a mile away from where my brother was shot, uh, another young lady was shot. Uh, around the city, um, students have been shot right outside of school. Um, on the metro, so students, um, we just have fear of traveling around the city, so it's it's a shared fear. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Thank you for your openness and honesty about that. Um, next question, ma'am. Yes, thank you, everyone, for being here and having this discussion tonight. It's terrific. We need to keep the conversation going. And I'm Babe King with the Yellow Tape Project to stop gun violence, and I just, Chris mentioned it, but I just want to reiterate that even tonight's occasion was billed as gun control. The press keeps talking about gun control, but we cannot talk to gun owners about gun control. That just raises a red flag and they immediately want to argue with you about the Second Amendment and you get nowhere. But if we're going to keep this conversation going to talk to gun owners so that they see it from the right perspective, we need to talk about stopping gun violence, gun violence prevention. Thank you for that comment. Um, next in line. So when you mention um, expanded background checks, what specifically does that mean? 
Does that include mental health screening? And are you comfortable with the government having that information? Let me explain how the background check system works, because I think there are a lot of misunderstandings about that. So if you go to a gun store today and buy a gun, you'll be asked to fill out a form. In true bureaucratic fashion, it's called a 4473 form. And you'll be asked uh, to, to complete it with your name and address and your date of birth. And then you'll be asked a series of questions. And one of the questions will be, are you a felon? Yes or no? Another question will be, have you been convicted of misdemeanor domestic violence? Yes or no? Is there a restraining order out against you? Have you been adjudicated mentally incompetent? And that language is terrible and outdated, folks, but it goes back for decades, and it would be worth updating it, but that's up to Congress to do. Uh, typically, that means you've been found not guilty by reason of insanity, or you've been involuntary, involuntarily committed to a mental institution. That's the standard on mental health that we use in existing federal gun law. Uh, you'll also be asked if you are a fugitive from justice and a few other questions. So that is how the, the form itself works. The government doesn't get the answers to that form. That form is retained by the gun store in a book. And here's what happens. When a gun is then recovered at a crime scene, so you've got potentially a, a dead body and a gun under a bush and the police officer recovers the gun, he takes the serial number off that gun and calls the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and says, what can you tell me about this weapon? ATF then calls the gun maker, let's say it's a Smith & Wesson gun, and says, Smith & Wesson, what can you tell me about gun with serial number 9999999? And they say, well, I sold it to Bob's distribution, gun distribution company three years ago. ATF th says, thanks very much, and they hang up. And then they call Bob's distribution company. None of this is digitized because there's a federal prohibition on spending any money to digitize any of these records. Mm -hmm. So you call, the ATF then calls Bob's and says, Bob, who did you sell it to? And Bob says, I sold it to Chuck's Gun Shop on the outskirts of Chicago. And the reason I mention Chuck's is that it is one of the most notorious gun stores in America. It sold, in a four-year period of time, more than 1,000 crime guns that had been recovered on the streets of Chicago. What Chuck's then does, or any gun store that gets that inquiry from the ATF, is go to their book of the 4473s. And they look that up by serial number and say, oh, we sold it to so-and-so on this date. And that's what the police use as a starting point for their investigation. Um, what is an amazing statistic, though, related to this gun store um, supply chain issue ties directly to what Zion was saying about the illegal guns on our streets. So when you add up all of those inquiries and checks about where the guns came from, an absolutely staggering statistic jumps out. And it's that 90% of the crime guns recovered by police officers in America were originally sold by only 5% of the nation's gun dealers. So it's just like with gun owners as we were talking about a few minutes ago, most are incredibly responsible and are really careful with their guns and understand that it's something that needs to be treated carefully and stored carefully. Similarly, most gun dealers do a great job of making sure people fill out those forms accurately and that they don't sell guns to people who are diverting them to the criminal market. But a very small percent, that 5% of the gun dealers that are the source of 90% of the crime guns, they're the ones putting the guns on the street that are making us all at risk from urban gun crime that disproportionately affects communities of color in this country. And one thing that we should be calling for is the 
enforcement of existing laws that require those gun dealers to take reasonable steps to avoid diverting guns from the legal market to the illegal market. Because we have a massive problem of urban gun violence in America, and almost all of those guns were made right here. So I'm confused. Is the point of the background check to shut down dealers that are diverting the guns? No, the the point of the background check is to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. And the background check is the way we do that, because as a country, we decided to put that burden on the dealer, not on the government. Right. So if you had everything you wanted, then how would the background check stop the sale of the gun to the person you don't want to have it sold to? Uh, The dealer would be the one to say, I'm not going to sell you that gun because you don't pass the background check, right? Correct. And 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 um, the dealer is the one that has the information about mental illness and that kind of thing. So the way it, it works is the dealer takes that background check form that somebody filled out, and then there are two steps that happen. One is if there are disqualifying responses on the form, they shut down the sale. That's what a responsible dealer does. So if you check the box that says, I'm a felon, then the dealer says, I'm sorry, I cannot complete this sale. Have a nice day, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also call a uh, set of databases maintained by the FBI called the NICS system. And that's the system that gathers the records from courthouses around the country, from mental institutions around the country, and other places to pull together all of the data that then verifies the answers that the would-be purchaser made on the form. I'm sorry. but So currently, um, Craig talks about the fact that there are about 20% of sales that don't go through the background check because of these loophole, the loopholes, right? They're private sales, essentially. In that case, how is the background check going to help? There isn't one, so it won't. But if you had one in that case, how do you, if, if a father wants to transfer the gun to his son, yep. are you going to require the father to go through the background check or the son? Typically, no. Different states do it different ways, and the pending federal legislation carves out immediate family members because there is a long tradition of people going hunting with their family members, as an example. Uh, so it, it does not require, it would not require a check for very close first degree or second degree relatives. Uh, but the way it works in the states that have expanded background checks varies a bit. You can do it a couple of ways. One is you just go down to the local gun shop to facilitate your private sale. And before you finish the transfer, you say, hey, dealer, would you run this through the background check system for me? And you pay them 10 bucks in the state of New York to do that service for you. Okay. I can see that's where the gun control, um, the gun advocates, I'm sorry, would have a problem with that. They're trying to make a private sale and they have to go to the to a dealer to facilitate that sale, like you said. I got a few more options on how to do it if that's their big concern. Okay, thank you. Next question. Thank you for a very thoughtful uh, conversation. Um, While I've not been affected by gun violence directly, I've had the blood of children on my hands as a pediatrician in caring for children in the emergency room, on the street. And um, it's interesting to note that the Heller case had another feature uh, in it that prohibited the District of Columbia from requiring gun locks uh, on people who owned guns. So the question of gun safety in the home, children playing with weapons, thinking that they're toys, that they're loaded. The government has stepped in in requiring car safety seats. The government has banned cigarette smoking. The government seems to be involved in certain arenas, 
But the whole issue, while it's a smaller number, and we're talking about a variety of issues here with the 60% uh, suicide and the majority of homicide from the uh, trafficking of weapons, the incomprehensible idea that parents wouldn't first seek to protect their children or that we can't seem to encourage gun safety. And I know Brady and Avery have done a wonderful job with the word, with ask. But what I'm wondering about, and Craig, maybe you can, you can help us, why even the death of children, I sit on the board for one of the families in Newtown, even the death of children hasn't summoned a responsibility in this country for all of us to think about how we can protect our children. I agree with you, and I don't understand it either. But uh, I think it's something like eight or ten children a day are hurt or killed in because of discovering and playing with a gun that was not kept safely away from them in the home. Uh, it's just common sense, and and yet the NRA manages to you know flummox us all with uh, this will be a restriction on your gun rights, and that's baloney. You know, I just, uh, to follow up on this for one quick second, I don't know how many of you um, have followed uh, some of the, the public health um, issues that uh, have been brought to the forefront in Baltimore, where there's a very, very progressive um, uh, young public health, health commissioner, Dr. Lena Wen, who very early on in her tenure a couple of years ago declared gun violence as a public health crisis in Baltimore. As obvious as that sounds, <laughs> It was a brave and courageous thing to do politically, and she did it. And you know, gun safety seems to me that of the sort that you're talking about seems to me to be an individual responsibility. It's a, it's a, it's a, it maybe there should be laws, but it's also about parents taking that. What Zion is up against, and what he's been talking about in his community, is a public health issue. It's a collective issue. Gun safety in the home of somebody is not probably as big a problem as the proliferation of illegal guns. I'm not sure how easy it is to get a gun, um, or if your friends or you wanted to go out and get a gun, how easy it would be. But that's a public health crisis. And you were saying that you wish your community could kind of take uh, a, a play a greater role in it. Um, but I'm sure that has a lot to do with having more opportunities in your community, more options for kids, more other, you know, maybe better schools, maybe better after-school activities, or whatever it is that creates a, a stronger incentive to stay away from guns. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, um, I'm not sure uh, how easy it is to, um, to obtain a gun, but um, I know people who have guns um, who said, well, I want a gun, so I'm gonna buy it from like that this person, but. I'm not really um, too sure about that, but it is it is true that we need um, um, more programs and extracurricular activities, or even um, jobs for um, for for young people, so they won't have to um, pick up a gun to try to rob someone. Or um, we need more um, you know counselors in school, um, so students could could talk to someone if they're having a bad day, so they won't have to. Um, um, express themselves in, in anger and violence. So that's that's just something that I really uh, believe. No, thank you. Ma'am, go ahead. Hi. Um, at the outset, someone mentioned that the opioid epidemic is now taking more lives than gun violence. 
But I was wondering, with the opioid epidemic and people starting with abuse of OxyContin and then finding themselves hooked and having to go into illegal drug markets, uh, with the increase in heroin dealing and fentanyl dealing, is that also feeding gun violence uh, among those 5% of the gun dealers that are generating 90% of the, the criminal uh, use of guns. Uh, are their sales rates going up, for example? Do these things relate? They probably do, but we don't have great data on this. Um, as I think a lot of people know, there have been restrictions on data collection by the federal government and how it can spend money um, on gathering that kind of data. So we really don't know. We just have hypotheses that they are probably linked. The, the crime rate went way up during the crack cocaine epidemic uh, 20 years ago and then declined afterwards. And I've been wondering myself, you know, what are we going to see now in connection with the opioid epidemic? But so far, I guess, uh, we just don't know. There was a famous uh, diagram that the Washington Post ran during the height of the crack epidemic. I don't know if any of you remember this, where they had a map of DC and they had dots for all of the open air crack cocaine markets. And then next to it, they had dots for all of the homicides and you could have virtually superimposed them. So, oh, okay, next question. You wait, you're an expert. <laughs> I know who you are, you can't fool me, go ahead. Why didn't Congress take action after Las Vegas, Sutherland Springs, and Parkland? Thanks, sweetie. Um, <laughs> yes, she's my plant in the audience today. They didn't because there, as we've said a couple of times here, there hasn't been an electoral consequence for it. Um, but that is going to change, and it's going to change this cycle, because if Congress won't do what we need them to do, I said it before, we'll just get a new Congress. Next question. Thanks again, this has been a fantastic um, presentation. I just love coming here. Um, I'm wondering how much culture plays a role in maybe the solution to this. And I say that because in my lifetime, I've noticed a lot of the really big positive change has been cultural that then drives legal and political change. So when we think about people driving with seatbelts, of course, that was Ralph Nader with some litigation, but then it was a cultural thing that led to seatbelt laws. Now people just innately put seatbelts on. Smoking, the same thing. Originally, the tobacco industry was monolithic. And I remember as a young adult, why bother? We'll never be able to overcome them. But then suddenly they they collapsed, and et cetera, et cetera, gay marriage, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe for Zion, I'd like to ask, I'm very encouraged by the younger generation that I think has really a lot more progressive thinking and things that make sense. You know, for example, gay marriage, I, I know a lot of young people, that's just a non-issue that and with people my generation, that's a real struggle. I'm, I wanted to ask you to share whether, as you look around at people your age, do they also think, you know, I'm hopeful that someday we'll have a time when people say, why did we ever believe it was so important to have guns as a way of solving our problems? And for the other two panelists, I also know this is a constitutional right. So does that complicate things? And I'm, am I being too Pollyannish in hoping for a cultural solution? Thank you. Yeah, so um, that's a huge um, discussion that um, my parents and I, I have um, we need to change the culture around guns. And um, 
So a lot of us are, are do think that way because, and guns guns are um a huge uh, part of, part of the problem why why we're unsafe. Uh, like if we eliminate, I'm not saying we should eliminate guns, but hypothetically, if we eliminate guns, then we will feel uh, a lot safer. So, so I think I think that if we um you know really change the culture around guns and saying that you know I don't I don't need I don't need a gun to um, protect myself, or just saying that that I really don't need guns, then that would really um, change the culture, if, if, if that was you were asking. But I'm not saying that we should uh, take away the Second Amendment. So. If I can just speak to that very briefly. Um, we've studied this a lot at Brady, and we've studied other successful social change movements. And actually, this week, we launched a partnership in concert with the Ad Council. Those are the people who brought you Smokey the Bear uh, and Friends Don't Let Friends Drive Drunk. And there are, in this country, sadly, eight kids and teens shot unintentionally every single day. So this past week on 8-8, August 8th, we launched a new program encouraging families and gun owners to take action to store guns safely. And we've given a name to this problem. We're calling it Family Fire, playing off of Friendly Fire from the military context. And what we realized is that you have to name something in order to solve it. You have to name it drunk driving. You have to name the solution designated driver. You have to name it secondhand smoke before people can know how to stop it and avoid it. So we are trying to name incidents of uh, gun violence in the home with improperly stored firearms as family fire. And the call to action is to end family fire. And one of the things that we were very careful to do is to not put the word Brady campaign all over it. So when you see these ads, you'll see them marked with the Ad Council. And you'll have to click through and do a little digging. We didn't hide it, but we just didn't want to lead with that because we know that there are so many people who want to do the right thing, parents who want to keep their children safe, as Craig said before. But it's been hard to engage in that conversation because it's been very polarized. So we're hoping that this end family fire campaign focused on kids and unintentional shootings is a is a tip of the spear opportunity for us to to actually effectuate that culture change i would say also about culture uh, uh, yet another reason for not looking to the federal level for every solution to the problem of gun violence is that it may make sense to have strict gun laws as we have in new york city or here in the district or in most of the East and West Coast urban areas. But those same laws don't necessarily make sense to people living in places like North Dakota and Wyoming. And there's no reason why it has to be one size fits all. Uh, but strict enforcement of those uh, laws when we do have them is essential. And that's a problem in a lot of places. You may remember that doctor in, uh, in a hospital in the Bronx in New York City who shot some of his colleagues and killed uh, one, uh, and then killed himself. Uh, he lived in New York City. He could not buy an AR-15 legally in New York City. So what did he do? He went upstate to Schenectady, where the laws are different, and, and got a gun legally. Now, that's crazy. You know, I can't buy a, a pistol to have in my apartment. The police wouldn't give me permission, but what do I have to do? Just go upstate and, and buy one and bring it back in illegally? Uh, our gun laws are, are crazy in many, many ways. 
Next question. So my question is for anybody on the panel that would like to respond. There seems to be a very well-developed playbook by the NRA and their political supporters after each mass shooting. Uh, silence, they kind of disappear for a while and then right on through the steps. So, um, and they kind of round up the band of usual suspects. It's mental health, it's this or it's that. But isn't it true that research, so other countries have mental health and domestic violence and drug problems. So what's the, what's the variable that we're really looking at? Isn't it just the prevalence of guns? That, that does make a difference, although I would point out that the largest single gun massacre anywhere was in Norway, not the United States, uh, a few years ago. But yes, they happen more often here uh, than they do in Norway because, sure, we've got more guns are more readily available. Can I just um, remind us all that Chicago, the inner city of Chicago, has yet again in the past few months seen a record-breaking rate of homicides, which sadly still does not get the attention of a parkland or a Las Vegas. And I, I just wonder what we can do to put that on people's radar. What is going to do that? Because even in our conversation today, you know, we tend to focus on the big dramatic events rather than the daily awfulness um, that people in a lot of cities in this country are living with. Zion just told us that he's still scared. I mean, that's that should just be unacceptable. It should just be unacceptable, and we should all feel a sense of incredible moral outrage and do something about it. So I would love to know what you guys think we can do about it and what you think we can do about it. I think uh, something that that we can do um, is that just uh, just share the spotlight with with other people because there is um, uh, media bias who uh, what the media wants to cover. So um, students from Parkland traveling to Chicago to hand them the mic. That's something that um, that, that we can continue to do and has um, been successful in in the past and just give give others the opportunity to share their stories and give others the opportunity to really speak up and really um, encourage youth youth to um, share their stories and create um, change. I think one of the most powerful things about the March for Our Lives was seeing kids from all these different communities together, sounding the same alarm together and really um, speaking with and for each other. And that was, uh, that was a very moving, moving day for sure. Next question. Got a question on the burden to taxpayers and also what foreign gov what foreign countries might be doing right as far as gun violence is concerned. So uh, Avery, I'm thinking since you work for the Brady campaign, you've probably thought a lot about the injuries that James Brady suffered and how expensive the medical care was in addition to how expensive it was to keep John Hinckley at uh, St. Elizabeth Hospital for for decades. So if you were to talk about that shooting and describe what the burden was for taxpayers, which may be a line of argument that gun owners would be uh, willing to think about, what, uh, what sort of burden was placed on the taxpayer from that one incident with one young troubled person who had a single gun and who injured a number of different people, including James Brady, severely so that he could not uh, work after that incident. And then for Craig, what uh, ideas have you seen in your travels overseas that seem to be 
seem to suggest that some foreign countries uh, have come up with some good uh, solutions to the problem of gun violence. I would say the the simplest thing uh, way of looking at it is that in most foreign countries you just can't go get yourself a gun. So the the problem does not exist to that extent. Uh, Australia is a good example of what can be done in a country that doesn't have a sec second amendment where people are more open-minded about taking drastic steps to reduce gun violence. They, after a gun massacre there, I've forgotten exactly when it was, 1998, I think, they, <clears throat> they declared by legislation uh, assault guns, assault rifles, uh, illegal and bought back the ones, and half a million of them, that people had in their possession. And as a result, they've not had another gun massacre on that scale in Australia since. Can we just do that here? I would say no. The situation, you know, the Second Amendment exists and the problem is, is much bigger. But yes, other countries have managed to avoid the gun violence problem we have for, and for historical reasons and as well as others. Uh, we're not a good example. You bring up a great point that there is a massive cost to the healthcare expenditure. And it, it ties back nicely to one of the first questions we had was, why are we only talking about the deaths, not the injuries? Because there are a lot of people who become severely um, medically needy for decades as a result. And in the late 90s, a number of cities tried to use your idea and sue the gun industry for the costs that it was imposing on them by having flooded the streets with handguns in particular that were being used in crimes. And I'm proud to say that my organization helped represent those cities uh, in those legal fights. And they were starting to win. They were brought in lots of different cities around the country. And the gun lobby got scared. And they realized that this was a real opportunity by those of us who were trying to keep America safer to have a significant financial impact on the one product that they were selling and making a lot of money on. So they went to Congress, and they got Congress to pass the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. And what that does is give a liability shield to licensed members of the gun industry, whether they are manufacturers or dealers of guns. And when it was passed and signed into law, the NRA declared it the most significant piece of gun legislation ever. So part of the reason that we don't see the costs, whether they're medical costs or the costs of police officers investigating street crime uh, or the cost of ambulances transporting victims, why we don't see that addressed is because the gun lobby got a special protection from Congress. And by the way, there is not a single other industry in America to whom we give that level of civil immunity. Okay, so um, I'm a sophomore at my high school, and I started a club for uh, this issue. But one issue I'm coming across is, like, as a sophomore, even by upperclassmen, I'm not being taken seriously. And then even at adults at my school, they're not, like, responding or even, like, emailing me back about starting the club. So I was just wondering how, or as adults, what makes, like, what, how can we be taken more seriously? Um, and maybe that's a question for, for Zion, for yeah. sure. So, um, I mean, that that was a huge problem that um, we all had. But the thing I would say is I just started to share my story and, and we just started to um, get numbers of people, of students who have been affected by gun violence. So by me saying, you know, my brother was shot and killed and someone else saying their parents were shot and 
and um, to show adults that this is this is a problem that needs to be addressed. This is a problem that really needs to be acknowledged and taken seriously. And and that's how um, we've began to get more support. Okay, thank you. All right, the last word. I could relate to the pediatrician because as Alyssa knows, as a generational Washingtonian young man, and I thank you for what you're doing. I've seen a lot of it, too, and having worked in the city for 40 years. I was working in the building where the president and Brady were shot the building directly across the street on Connecticut Avenue, and we were all, you know, at, at the windows, and it was very traumatic, certainly for all of those involved. And as I remember, Secret Service agent did lose his life that day. But I do want to say this because I haven't heard it mentioned uh, with respect to domestic violence. A lot of it is fueled by alcohol. Alcohol is legal. Now, I don't know what your stats may show, but when they they speak to a lot of these individuals, and the police will tell you, many of them when they talk to and, and things that happen, a lot of incidents are related to alcohol or drugs, you know, like guns. Who's going to do anything? They tried doing prohibition with, with alcohol, and it's a real serious, serious issue. The same thing with the video games. You ever watch any of them? And all of the violence that is in the video games, you know, you turn on the, you turn on the TV, the detective shows, the crime shows, the everything else. And for, for you, Avery, for all of you, you know, I applaud you for your work. If you want to comment on the video games, on alcohol, on TV and everything that we're seeing, because that's everyday stuff and very macho and kids, people take all of that in you know, and become somewhat immune to uh, violence. So you've said a, a lot of things. There's a lot to unpack there. But one point in particular that strikes me uh, on the question of video games and Hollywood violence and television violence, I do hear a lot of people blame that. And then I consider the fact that we export those games and those movies and those television shows all over the world. Yeah, sure all over we the do. world, sure we people do. watch that media and play those games. And only in America does it result in the epidemic levels of gun violence that we have. So I think that it may not be incredibly helpful to have violent depictions of gun violence on television and on uh, video games. But to me, the real difference is that in America, we have easy access to guns for people who shouldn't be able to access them. That is, I think, what is oh, I agree our gun with violence you that. I don't problem. disagree with it's that. It's not yeah. primarily a problem right. of violent media, right. in my mind. Right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so we are going to have to wrap up. I'm sure this conversation could go on for eternity, probably. Hopefully it won't need to. Hopefully we'll never need to have another one of these, but we probably will. But I do want to just end by asking each of our, 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 our wonderful panelists to just in a quick minute or so, Give us the biggest takeaway they can for what we need to do as individual citizens, as a community, to stem gun violence. So, Craig, you want to go? Demand of your elected representatives at every level that they support ways to uh, control gun violence. And by voting, them. by... Vote. Well, voting, go and make clear that phone what, calls. You, what you want and then vote for people who say they'll do what you want them to do and demand that uh, they do it. Okay. I have a harder one for everybody. And that is here in, in this area, we already have a lot of great elected officials, so I agree people need to keep holding their feet to the fire. 
we actually need to be changing the narrative here, in my view. Uh, the NRA has done a great job of defining this as an issue of individual liberty and rights. And I think that that's something that we can work back against, because when you define something as a right and an individual freedom, it's hard to think about how you compromise with that right. And instead, I think that we should be grabbing the language of rights. We need to talk about our right to be safe in our schools and safe in our streets and safe in our churches and safe in our bookstores and safe in our places of work. And that is what we demand as our right. So let's stop ceding that term and ceding that language to them. This is not a false dichotomy of you either love guns or you hate guns. You support the Second Amendment or you want it repealed. Or in the starkest way I hear the NRA put it, you either support the right that guarantees all others or you're a socialist. None of those things is true, and we need to stop accepting that. Instead, we need to be framing this conversation about our rights as a society to be safe, as 17-year-olds not to have our twin brothers be shot on our community streets. And if we can change the language there, and if I can ask all of you at your next cocktail parties to do this with me and say that it's not that I'm pro-Second Amendment or anti-Second Amendment, I'm against people shooting each other and that it's at an epidemic level in America, and surely we can agree on at least some of the common sense issues that we've discussed here tonight. Wonderful answer. And Zion, you've got the, you've got the last word. Before, before Zion finishes up for us, I just can we just give him a huge round of applause for doing what he's doing? You. I, you know, I don't know about the rest of you, but these kids, these kids have really done something that no one thought could be done, and they've stuck with it, and they're courageous, and they're fabulous, and we just need to support them. And what can we do to support you? What do you need? What, what do you recommend going forward? The only thing that I would really recommend is to, to continue to empower youth, um, allow them to um, uh, create solutions, and allow them a seat at the table to really um, really have a conversation about what really affects students because we know what affects us and we know how um, uh, we want to see change. So that's the, the thing that I really say. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.